You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's Oscar time. And you know what that means? Today, we will partake in the time-old tradition of arbitrarily singling out best picture winners we don't like and make it clear why we don't like them. Oh, and, you know, the exact same thing for the ones we do like as well. We do, however, hope to do this a little differently than everybody else, as what is always missing from these conversations is just that little bit of added context. You know, the world outside of the Oscars, because that does exist. Don't worry, though, there won't be any scandalous exposés. We will, however, look at the facts and try to make an assessment of just how well the Oscars actually managed to pick films that will remain considered the best film of the year. And we will look at the positive and negative impacts the Oscar ceremony actually brings on the world. And, and that's not all. We'll even try to psychoanalyze and generalize the Oscar voters until we can diagnose exactly why they vote as they do. We'll fail miserably at this, of course, but oh well, let's play. Adam, Saul, and Mathieu, introduce yourself and just let me know how much do you love the Oscars? Hi, this is Adam Bablaco on the ICM Forum. I have to say I don't care remotely about the Oscars at all. I do, however, somewhat care about some of the movies that are nominated at the Oscars. Hi, it's Saul from Australia. The Oscars is something which I cared about a lot when I first got into cinema. So when I was looking for older films, it would sort of inform my judgment about what to look for. These days, though, I do see it as a bit more of a popularity contest. It's still something that I do find very interesting. Hi, I'm Mathieu from France. And while I wouldn't say necessarily that I love the Oscars, I do enjoy them and I do like following the whole thing, the whole race. And my tastes are not that far away from that of the Academy that I often find films I like in them. So I do generally enjoy them. Yeah, I'm more or less in your camp as well, in that I don't love the Oscars, but I do always try to go out of my way to watch the Best Picture nominees and to stay on top of all of it. Which brings me on to the very next question. Do any of you actually sit down and watch the entire Oscar show, or at least parts of it? Well, I looked up uh, the list of Oscars this morning and I figured it out. I think the first one I saw was in 1994, and the last one I saw was in 1999, and I haven't watched it since. It's just something that I was excited about when I first started getting interested in movies, but after seeing it a few times, I, I, I realized that it just didn't feel like it was actually something that was really in love with the movies. It, it felt like a ceremony that was in love with the film industry. Uh, and that's what it really is. It's, it's a film industry event to celebrate the people in the film industry. And it's not that they don't deserve to be celebrated, but I care more about the movies than about the <laughs> the rich producers who make them. The first Oscar ceremony that I watched was 2002 ceremony, the year that A Beautiful Mind won. And I watched the ceremony every year since then, up until the 2018 awards for 2017 films. The last two years, so the years that our Green Book won, the year that Parasite won, I didn't watch the entire ceremony. 
I looked at bits and pieces of it afterwards, like Spike Lee's acceptance speech. That was pretty cool. But I'd sort of gotten over it. So it was a real big thing for me that I'd try and watch it live every single year. If it wasn't broadcast live, I'd try and not listen to the radio all day and then watch in the evening that night. Uh, the big thing about the Oscars these days is they're just very predictable. I really like watching the Golden Globes because it's the first major awards ceremony of the year. And by that stage, people are making all the predictions, but nobody really knows who's like to actually win. By the time the Oscars have come out, you've already had the Golden Globes, you've had the BAFTAs, you've had the SAG Awards, you've had the Independent Spirits, and pretty much by then everybody knows who's going to win every single category. There's always a couple of surprises in there, but with 24 categories, if there's only two of them that are surprises, it's really got to the point where there's no point in me actually watching it, and I can usually predict 75% or more of the winners each year anyway, so just the last couple of years, I'm just like, there's no point. So for me, it's a bit of an issue to watch the Oscars because they're at night. I did watch them when I was a student. I think the first ceremony I watched was the one where Birdman won. So that was 2015. But I have stopped recently because I was working and uh, had to get up early the next morning. So couldn't really watch them at like 2 a.m. But I have enjoyed watching the ceremony. I agree with Saul that they are pretty predictable if you follow what's going on. But I enjoy the celebration of movies, even if it's very self-involved. Yeah, I'm in pretty much the same situation as Mathieu in that uh, when you're in Europe, the Oscars are here at night. They essentially finish in the morning. Uh, there, there was a time when I was more interested and I would try to watch it, but I would usually only get up to the very, very first awards or just, you know, casually flip in when people are actually still gathering up outside and were interviews. And that's just not very interesting me so i never really saw the entire ceremony at all i'm usually not interested in the speeches either so i don't go back and watch the clips though i do essentially every single time as soon as i wake up the next morning go online and see what I actually want because that is pretty interesting unlike Saul, i tend to be at least a little bit surprised by some of the wins even though there's usually just two three real candidates and that does tie me over into the next question which is and I guess I answered for myself, but do you follow the nominees themselves? You know, I, I think I've already <laughs> made my uh, disinterest in the Oscars pretty clear, and that extends to the nominees. I, I certainly don't avoid any movies because of their nomination, but um, I can't say that I, I seek out any movies because of their nominations to any of the uh, Oscars categories. I think watching the films that have been nominated or likely to be nominated is very interesting. Even though there's a lot of underrepresentation of certain genres and movements and so on at the Oscars, it still gives a pretty good cross-section of some of the more acclaimed and more worthwhile films each year. So I do follow a little bit of some of the Oscar buzz talk and when things pop up from Gold Derby, I sometimes get newsletters from them. And I find out some of the films that are predicted to do well. When they come around to Australia, yeah, I'm interested in seeing them. I've heard some rave things about them. I'm not seeing them because I want to see every single film that's won an award. But it gives me a good idea about maybe some more interesting things out there that might not otherwise be on my radar. So I do follow them. Ever since the, that Berman year where I started following, I have made an effort to watch all the films nominated for Best Picture if possible, before the ceremony, which is not always possible because sometimes they come out just a few weeks after here. 
but I, I do try to follow them. And like I said, I, I enjoy the race aspect, the kind of sports in the world of movies. Sol mentioned Gold Derby. It's also something I used to follow more, now a little less. But I do follow the movies and I do watch them more, more to have an opinion on what won than necessarily because I'm hoping they will be great. I've just got an interesting point on Best Picture nominees. I would say in the first few years I was getting into cinema, so maybe 2001 to 2007, I'd say I would have pretty much watched all of the five Best Picture nominees for the year before the ceremony if possible. When they started expanding 10 films, it got a lot less interesting to me, and I'd only watch maybe three or four before the ceremony, the ones that really looked good. But then 2017 came along, I joined iCheck Movies and Academy Award Best Picture nominees as an official list. That actually gives me more motivation to watch Best Picture nominees than I would have had in years before that. I just want to jump in to say that well, I'm not particularly interested in movies because they're nominated. I, I think Saul's approach is, is a pretty good one. You can really get a good understanding of... Hollywood and the film industry by watching all the nominees in a given year. And I'm thinking specifically of a book I read called Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood. It's by a writer named Mark Harris, who's one of the better movie writers around right now. And it examines specifically the best picture nominees, I think from 1967. To be specific, Dr. Doolittle, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and Bonnie and Clyde, which is a really weird collection of movies. And his argument is that this collection of movies shows a changing understanding in Hollywood of what a best picture should be, as well as a changing understanding of the types of movies that Hollywood make. So I think that approach is, is an interesting one to sort of pick year, see all the nominees, and try to suss out what exactly is going on in Hollywood at this time that produced these five movies. Yes, I agree. And I think that is the point of the Oscars. I think many people expect the Oscars to be something they're not, right? I think they are just what they are, which is the emanation of the film industry, well, specifically the American film industry. And it's basically the films that Hollywood is proud about from the past year. And I think when viewed through that lens, it's quite interesting to see what the people working in the film industry feel is their best work. Whether or not we agree is kind of beside the point. I think it's just interesting to see what the results are. I thought I might also just mention, because of what Adam said about the 1967 Best Picture nominees, I've actually seen around 90% or more of the Best Picture nominees from 1945 up until 2008. But it's just that period beforehand and the period afterwards where they're choosing up to 10 films each year for a Best Picture nominee. It sort of dilutes the whole thing for me. It makes it a lot less interesting. It's a lot more interesting for me when you've got a film selected as one of the five best of the year and it represents something socially or something which is going on there. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same box with you there. In that from the years five films, I've seen pretty much all, but for the ones before and after, it gets a little bit more difficult. But at the same time, I think the expanded uh, categories also make them a little bit more interesting because you get a lot of films in there that weren't usually there. And, and that was also the reason why they expanded them in the first place, to get you know films that were either more popular or in some cases slightly more artistic, like when they actually nominate the Terrence Malick's uh, Tree of Life. So you actually get the occasional film that you know would never have been nominated. It's a little bit 
outside of the mainstream but still get that kind of exposure and i really like that those films actually get a chance to get that extra exposure but it, it does dilute it in terms of following the race i tend to try to watch everything i can before the ceremony comes in just so i know what i feel about them because i usually at least like to have seen the best picture winner before so i don't just come with a completely blank reaction where i don't even know how i feel about it the like Saul said earlier usually you have a pretty good idea of what will win and what's reasonably to expect to win so i i can get that done and then it gets a little bit more exciting too because you do have your favorite and even though i think you're all completely correct that it is just a show for hollywood by hollywood because they're all hollywood insiders essentially working in the industry it is still that sport element where you root for your own favorite you know which ones you hope are going to win you know which ones you kind of hope won't win either because they're too obvious or because you don't like them and that does make it a little bit more exciting and i think we have all more or less started to answer this question but do you think people should actually care about the oscar like is it worth following do people get something out of following the films that get nominated and get involved in the ceremony etc I'm going to attempt to take a, a nuanced position here. I'm very much a live and let live type of person when it comes to enjoying movies. I always say, whatever makes you happy, do it. And, you know, I haven't listened to the, the film purism episode yet, but you know, I figure if someone wants to watch a movie while taking many breaks or on a weird uh, frame rate speed, it doesn't make sense to me, but, you know, knock yourself out. So if people like the Oscars, go for it. You know, watch it. Whatever makes you happy. The only thing I would say, if we're using the term should, is that I hope people recognize Oscars for what it is, which again, as I said, is sort of a film industry celebration. And so when I hear people get into these arguments about, you know, oh, X movie shouldn't have won, he shouldn't have won the award, that shouldn't have been nominated, I always kind of think should has nothing to do with it. This is about the film industry celebrating itself, and you're talking about quality as if movie quality and film industry are the same thing. To me, it's a category error. And I understand why people enjoy arguing over it. Um, it just feels like it's kind of besides the point. I don't know if people should care about the Oscars. Like Adam said, a lot of it depends on what they're thinking when they're going in and watching it and looking at the winners. I don't think it should be used as a set-in-stone determination of what is really the best out there. But the tricky thing is it is the most respected award ceremony films out there at the moment. It's the only real celebration and recognition that's sort of recognised around the whole world for movies. So I think it's got some sort of importance there, but in terms of caring about it, I don't know. The main thing, I guess, for the Oscar winners is it gives more recognition sometimes to good filmmakers who sometimes deserve a bit more recognition and sometimes are able to go on to do better things once they've won an award and once they've got an Oscar nomination behind them. And some of them don't go on to do great things, but it's nice to have the recognition out there because I'm sort of thinking, well, maybe we'll get them a bit more funding or more chance of getting funding to do their own sort of project. Uh, I completely agree with Adam, uh, basically, on everything he said. I would add that you should watch them if you are interested in what Hollywood thinks of itself. But if you're looking for, I don't know, a list of recommendations, just ask your friends or 
read critics, but that's not what they are. So just know what they are. And if that interests you, sure. I mean, for my part, I think it's very hard to not, at least in some way, care about the Oscars and what gets nominated, especially what wins, because in film culture, this just gets instantly canonized, at least for a specific period of time. And unlike what a lot of people think, being a cinephile, being a film buff is quite social. We spend a lot of time talking about films. And the Oscar especially sparked so many conversations and it platforms a lot of really big Hollywood films, which will be talked about over and over and over again. And I think that if you want to take part in those conversations, which can be interesting, even if these films aren't necessarily great in themselves, is that losing out of those conversations and, and that massive, just enormous spectacle of thoughts and essays and you know brass opinions and hot takes, etc. I think that you'll be losing a lot. And I mean a lot. And especially there's also the interest of history as well, because of how big the Oscars is. Every single time a film wins the Oscar, that is history in the making. I mean, I know that when we start talking about the films and listing the best and worst, etc., we will be going back to even the 30s and 20s. And this just shows how big the impact is, because even if a film is not at all remembered for anything else today, it will stand out because it won that Oscar and will be marked in film history because of it. And this also ties into our first slightly bigger topic, which is the actual impact the Oscars have. I agree. The Oscars definitely have a huge impact on the film industry in a bunch of ways. You mentioned, of course, that it shapes the conversation. Sometimes even individual films are so tied to that conversation that it becomes part of what you have to talk about with them when you talk about them. Like um, Shakespeare in Love beating Savik Ryan. That's however we wanted to see it. People have an opinion on that film because of what it did at the Oscars. Or I'm also thinking of the year you had uh, La La Land and Moonlight. People who liked both movies suddenly started criticizing the other film because they were opposed. So it definitely has a huge impact on the way we talk about the movies that are involved. It also has a big impact on the release of films. You definitely see it with the notion of the awards season. A certain type of films coming out all in the end of the year in the US and in Europe, kind of the end of the year, but also the start of the year. And that kind of shows up in the way that there's this dearth of movies coming out right after the Oscars, right? Especially in the US. I think Matthew has raised an interesting point about where the Oscars change the award season and the way that films are released that bigger films would try towards the end of the year in order that they can propel them more towards awards. That's something that I don't particularly like and don't particularly fancy because you sort of get three months of the year where you get really high-quality films coming out. But for the other nine months of the year, you get a lot of very ordinary films or average films designed to just appeal to um, the average film consumer, big budget spectacles. It would really be nice if we sort of had that continuous flow throughout the year. And there haven't actually been a lot of Oscar Best Picture winners that have been released early in the year. Uh, I guess Parasite would be a sort of exception, but that still came out in the second half of the year for most people. Gladiator in 2000 came out fairly early on. Really, most of the big awards films are released towards the end of the year, and I think that kind of interferes with you know, what really should be 
and natural progression. You know, filmmakers and studios shouldn't be holding off and showing their films just because they think it would be an awards contender. And then some films end up being massive disappointments because they're held off with, and people go into them thinking they'll be an Oscar contender. And it might be a good film, but it's not a great, great film that leads to a level of disappointment because it's been released during the Oscar buzz season. So um, I'd prefer if the calendar was a bit more evenly spaced out. I actually have a slightly different take there, which is that if you didn't actually have the Oscars and the other massive award ceremonies like the Golden Globes, etc., there might even have been a slightly less incentive to make these kinds of films because I think that the fact that they release so tight together that you have all of the massive promotions about the Oscars and you sell films with the Oscar awards on them, etc., I do think that drives to a certain extent, what gets made. Studios also specifically do these prestige projects for the awards. They spend millions and millions and millions on promoting these films for the awards. So I I do think that if the Academy Awards and similar award ceremonies didn't exist, it it is actually possible that some of these films wouldn't even necessarily get made. I know what you're saying there, Chris, that the attraction of possibly being an Oscar nominee and Oscar winner would give producers or studios more incentive to actually greenlight these films. But I think a lot of films that get greenlighted because they people think they'll be Oscar contenders on paper actually aren't very good. And a lot of the really good Oscar winners of the past 10 years have been films that weren't made to win Oscars and weren't designed for that, you know, things like The Artist or Parasite, art films that people were making them and financing them, thinking, oh, I'm hoping I'm going to win an Oscar for it. So I know what you're saying, Chris, and it's good that the industry's got more incentive to make films, but I think there's a lot of really subpar biopics and other films that are released that aren't that good and they're just released because the studios are hoping that there'll be an Oscar bait film, when in fact the (laughs) best films of the year are actually an independent film. Yeah, you're spot on about that. Well, Adam was talking earlier about 1967 as being this key year because of the new Hollywood showing up at the Oscars. And I think what you mentioned is kind of something similar like you can see happening in the past 10 years. It's not as radical, I think, as what happened in the 60s, but you also see with all the drive to change the membership of the Oscars to be more representative. I think you see that in the results. I don't know if it's worth getting into at the moment, but I don't think the main reason why Parasite won was because you had a more international scope of people on the Academy. I think the film Winning Best Picture was just a great distraction from Greta Gerwig not being nominated and having no female Best Director nominees because that was such a big thing. Or getting such slack over it. I think it really makes sense in the end that the majority of Academy of voters decided, well, we need to distract from this. Well, why don't we try and have our first foreign language Best Picture winner? Well, I don't know if they really think like that, but I think one other point I would like to add, which I think you've mentioned a bit, Sol, is how there's basically a genre of film that is associated with the Oscars, and that's biopics. And that's, I think, a very significant influence that the Oscars and awards in general have on filmmaking. Chris mentioned that certain films are made for Oscars, and biopics in particular, because they are so good for winning Oscars, 
they are very associated with that. And I think that's a very clear influence of the, the ceremony on actual filmmaking. Yeah, I think you have a very interesting theory there. So it, it, it is possibly true that many people thought like that. You know, we know and we've seen interviews with Academy voters that do think politically, do think in terms of uh, what message they're sending. And that also explains a lot of the less uh, good films that we might be discussing later as well. But before we get started with that, I wanted to bring up one more thing that the Academy actually does in terms of impacting the world, and that is distribution. Because if a film does end up getting an Academy nomination, or especially an Academy win, that really improves how that film will perform elsewhere. And I'm not just talking after the awards, I'm talking in the uh, screening period as well. So I think many of us, especially those of us outside of the US or Europe and any listeners who might be in Asia, etc. as well, I'm sure it's the same thing. Most of these films that get nominated for an Oscar don't come out until after that nomination is actually given out. Sometimes they don't even come out until after they have won or lost, which is a bit extreme how long these delays can be. But I, I know for a fact that there are many films I would never even have gotten an opportunity to see if they hadn't gotten a nomination one I actually missed, and I'm really sorry I missed it. The favorite, which came uh, to the country I live in for just one week, and I didn't know. I thought it was coming. I was really excited. I was going to go the next week. But because it was considered such an extremely small niche film here, it, it just, they just didn't care to put it on for longer. But it came, and it was there for one week. And if I had known that, I would have gotten the opportunity to see it. And I think that even though to a lot of people who watch films quite closely, the Academy ceremony does appear to be, you know, this brushing off a specific set of really commercial, really popular films. But in a lot of countries, these films don't even get exposure to begin with because they're, you know, not the latest blockbuster. So I do think that this is actually one way that the Academy ceremony really helps, especially with Best Foreign Picture nominees, etc. as well. A lot of these smaller films do get quite a bit of help. I do entirely agree with that, Chris. Uh, living in Australia, in Perth, we're not a city that's got a whole lot of art house cinemas. Where there is not much cinema culture here, so it is quite true that a lot of films wouldn't have made it even to the art house cinemas over here if it wasn't for them popping up in award season. So it is good that the Oscars are able to highlight that. And I don't really have anything against the Oscars as such. I just know that also, as was mentioned earlier, there's lots of biopics and prestige, quote-unquote, films that are made in order to try and garner Oscar nominations. I'm just thinking back a few years ago, we had the uh, Grace of Monaco film and the Princess Diana film released in the same year and lots of buzz about them before they came out. And they both ended up being enormous disappointments with the critics, even though everybody was saying, well, it's going to be really great because it's about these real-life people. I don't know. It's interesting. I'd say there definitely are pluses with the Oscars. I think exposure for films like The Favourite is really great when that's able to happen. Or even films like Lobster, uh, which was Lance Moss's previous film, when that got the original screenplay nomination, obviously that opened up a few more doors also. I mean, yeah, I would like to just say I agree 100% there. Like The fact that the artist got nominated, and I love the artist. I know it's gotten popular to hate on it now since it became so big, but the fact it was such 
a relatively small and let's remember French production and a real silent film done with so much love and care, getting that exposure and actually winning. I mean, that led to so many people seeing their first silent film of all time. That's just really incredible. So we've all gotten a lot more positive over the last uh, <laughs> over the last few building up this love and admiration for the positive impact that the Oscars seemingly have. So let's try to strip all of that away and focus on the films that we consider the worst Best Picture winners of all time. So let's just hear from all of you like, with a quick start. Which Best Picture winner do you think is the very worst? And how bad is the very worst Best Picture winner? All right, now we're talking about something fun. Um, there are so many, so many contenders. I think there have been many bad movies that have won Best Picture, but uh, the only one that I find a little morally and ethically ugly is Gone with the Wind. And um, I'll read what I wrote about it recently in our uh, forum's rankdown contest. There are some bad things to say about the writing of this movie and some good things to say about the photography and a dozen other positive and negative remarks that one can make. But none of that matters. What does matter is three and a half hours of parboiled lost cause romanticism. It's enough to wretch, which I didn't do when I saw this movie, though I admit a creeping feeling of horror and revulsion. Indeed, I think the movie makes for a turgid historical epic, but a somewhat effective horror movie. For maybe those people who are not familiar with the American terminology, lost cause romanticism refers to a pro-Confederate ideology. So it's it's a difficult movie to watch just because of its sympathy for uh, the American South during the Civil War. It's been quite a while since I've seen Gone with the Wind. It is a film I've seen a couple of times. I've never really found anything too disturbing with the depiction of the South and slavery and all that because me I guess it was always just a small subplot and a small part of the film whereas what really got to me about the film was the Scarlett O'Hara character and I just found it a very very dynamic character lots of interesting interplay in there it's not my favourite Best Picture nominee, but I think when we look at all 92 or so films that have won the award, I think there are a lot of blander films and less interesting films out there. I suppose when I'm going through and looking at the worst for me, I don't know if I could actually really say worst. I'd say maybe weakest. I don't know if there's any Best Picture winners that I've given less than a 6 out of 10 to, although, of course, there are quite a few of them that I'd only give a 6 out of 10 to. The weakest for me is possibly Mrs. Miniver, the 1942 winner with Greer Garson. That was uh, not a very interesting film. A lot of it's very jingoistic. It was released during World War II. And a lot of it, if you're looking at it 75 or 80 years later, a lot of it's not very relevant. So I found that a pretty uninteresting film. There's also a lot of things like keeps being mentioned, but around the world in 80 days, a lot of spectacle in there. Not very much. There's a substantial film. Though the interesting thing is that Giant, which won Best Director, isn't a much better film either. So 1956 for me has some of the weakest Best Picture nominees. Another one for me is Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. 
I didn't think that was a particularly great film. I didn't think any of the Lord of the Rings films were particularly good. The reason why it won is because there's a lot of resentment about it losing out, or the first one losing out to a beautiful mind in 2001. There was a lot of talk in the internet, oh, we need to reward it, we need to reward this massive achievement. And it is a massive achievement and spectacle, but in terms of writing, no, it's horrible. It actually won a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, that's what happens when things get swept away up in the moment. So I think if people were looking at a film like that under ordinary circumstances, it would get a few technical nom nominations. I don't think under normal circumstances it would be a Best Director or Best Adapted Screenplay nominee, let alone winner. In The Two Towers, which I actually prefer of the Lord of the Rings films, Best Visual Effects, Best Character with Gollum having a lot of screen time, that didn't get a Best Director or Best Adapted Screenplay nomination. So I would have expected the same for The Return of the King. So that one instantly pops down as a weak one. There's a few other weak ones, but they're films I haven't seen recently, like An American in Paris. I didn't think too much of that in the time. I haven't really seen that one recently enough to comment on it. So to jump back just uh, quickly on Gone with the Wind, it's a film I like a lot for reasons that Sol mentioned. I think Scarlett O'Hara is a fascinatingly complex character. And I think aesthetically, the film is, is quite something. However, I absolutely agree with Adam that it is a racist film, and I would not dream of defending it on moral grounds, just on aesthetics. I think, by the way, it's interesting that two of the films that we mentioned so far are films that we dislike for political or moral reasons, right? Gone with the Wind being racist, and Mrs. Miniver, I haven't seen it, but Saul says it's uh, jingoistic. Anyway... Mine is not actually that. Uh, my least favorite Best Picture winner is Braveheart. It kind of epitomizes everything that I can dislike in Oscarsy type films. It's a historical biopic that is just using this vague historical story slash myth, mixing the two and just making a star vehicle out of that. I'm not a stickler for historical accuracy at all. But Braveheart is particularly egregious in that regard. And it all serves a pretty regressive story of the manly man and his lover who exists only to be killed and give him a, mot a motivation. And you add to that the unthinking nationalism and Gibson's unhealthy fascination for Christ-like figures, plus an incredibly bloated narrative, and you get a pretty excruciating experience for me. Even the battle scenes were quite uninteresting, really. So it's a film with very few, if any, redeeming qualities for me. And I think I have to follow the trend and comment on Gone with the Wind as well. I, I have to be completely honest. I, I love Gone with the Wind. I think it is such a massive, epic, one, one of the best films of 39 for sure. It has such strong performances. It, it's obviously the central drama and the characters and the scope of the film that really brings it home. But I can also really understand that especially if you're American and with, you know, the American history and knowing that context better, that film can be read so extremely differently and probably more accurately as well. I think when you're from Europe and you don't have any strong connections whatsoever to the Civil War or what they fought for, you're much more likely to just see it as the character story and not really focus on, let's say, the the background motif, which we know a lot of Americans recently are really hyping up this movie for, and which is quite, quite unsettling. Um, I, I also want to comment quickly on the, the other films mentioned. So I actually love Mrs. Miniver. I think it's a very beautiful character portrait. 
not one of the very best winners, but it's still a film that got quite emotionally involved in. I think it's just such a nice, heartfelt narrative. And for Braveheart, yeah, I agree completely. One of the weakest, for sure. I mean, I, th- I think it's just... The 90s is such an interesting time because with Braveheart and also Gladiator, you essentially had the two big teenage boy best film of all time matching with the Academy, which is just such a bizarre thing. Like, these two films just don't have any kind of emotional depth. They're extremely shallow, empty, relatively dull action films, which just, it it boggles my mind that they were even under consideration. And and, and yeah, some people mentioned Return of the King, exactly the same thing. Now, I have much fonder feelings for Return of the King because I love how they built the fantasy world across the entire trilogy. But uh, yeah, absolutely the same thing, where it's something that's, clearly far more targeted at teenage boys. Now, my least favorite film that's ever won Best Picture actually has to take us back to almost the very beginning. We're going back to the 1930s ceremony. And I'm talking, of course, of the Broadway melody, or as it's sometimes called, the Broadway melody of 1929, which really showcases how extremely shallow the Academy is in just throwing out awards to the latest big fad. I mean, this was one of the big early sound musicals, and that really seems to be the only reason this won at all. Like, the sound is not great. It's it's like you were throwing away a nomination to an early Ronald Emmerich film or something because of the CGI use. It... Boggles, like the fact that this film won over all of the beautiful, extremely strong silent films released this year in a period when the sound was so terribly poor, and I guess it shows so much better in retrospect. It, it, it's just jarring. Like this, the sound landscape here, the way the songs are recorded, it doesn't sound great at all. And it's really just nominating the latest fad. It's we finally have. Ataki, we finally have this musical, we finally have sound, let's just throw an award at it. And yeah, that's why that's my least favorite, and it's just not a very well-made film at all. I'm happy to join my, my fellow co-hosts in their, uh, their hatreds and dislikes. For the most part, I haven't seen Broadway Melody or Mrs. Miniver, but uh, I also thought Braveheart is, is just awful, as well as uh, The Return of the King. I loved Braveheart when I was a kid, loved it. Um, I think, you know, part of the process of becoming an adult is recognizing that these simplistic stories are are very false, ultimately. Not just uh, false in terms of realistic storytelling, but also false historically. It provides um, a very false history of uh, Scotland and England in that era. Return of the King, gosh, what can I say? It's three and a half hours, and it's one of those movies that felt far longer. Uh, there are multiple false ends, moments when I... I thought the movie's over and then it just kept going. So I remember there was a point uh, near the end where um, there was an audible groan in the movie theater as we thought it was going to end and the story just kept continuing. And uh, I'm sorry to say I, I hated all the Lord of the Rings movies, but uh, we don't need to get into that. I know it's very dear to some people. It just, it's just movies that, that did not connect to me. I just, just felt for most of these movies, I didn't care about these characters. I didn't really understand what was going on. I'll just jump in on a couple of the films that were mentioned then. Braveheart, I haven't actually seen it. Uh, That's one of the few, there aren't that many, maybe 10 or so Best Picture winners that I haven't seen. 
Braveheart is one of them because I've pretty much heard everything about it similar to what my co-hosts have just said. Uh, Mel Gibson, yeah, I don't know, I'm a bit off and on with him. He's done some interesting films and performances. He's very good in uh, conspiracy theory as an actor, as a filmmaker. Yeah, I don't know. I've never had any interest in actually checking out Braveheart with everything that I've heard about it. And interestingly, this ties us into the Broadway Melody, because similarly, the Broadway Melody is another film that I've never heard much good about, and which I've decided I don't actually really need to see. There's no real compelling reason for me to see it. I mean, along with uh, Cavalcade and Cimarron, which are both considered to be among the weakest Best Picture winners, Broadway Melody is just another one from the early days of the Oscars that just doesn't seem to be something that's going to reflect what was considered to be the very best at that time. I mean, it's hard to tell about the Oscars in the first few years. A lot of it was just a lot of our back slapping. And I think it's really only as they progressed and got down to maybe five nominees in the mid-1940s that the nominees and winners there becoming a bit more relevant to reflecting social things and different trends in the film industry. I do have to mention another film I'm really sorry about. The French Connection might actually top out Mrs. Miniver as my least favourite Best Picture winner. It's actually one that didn't spring to mind because I liked it less the second time. It was more the first time round or sort of like, oh, I guess this is all right. Second time round, third time round, it's like, yeah, there's really nothing to it. Uh, it was really big in the 1970s, all the uh, chase things going on and off the train, but... None of that is particularly new by standards today, and it just really isn't anything to the film. I mean, even Gene Hackman's performance and character is much better developed in John Frankenheimer's sequel to the film. I, I can't believe you just said that, to be honest. It's an okay film. It just feels so flat and empty compared to The French Connection, where uh, Gene Hackman delivered such a phenomenal performance, especially as, you know, a corrupt racist 70s cop where you know it's clear that this is such a problematic character and you just dive into his mind i would actually say that it's one of the best best picture winners to be completely honest with you and, and but jumping really quickly back to uh cimarron and cavalcade yeah there's almost no reason to watch cimarron outside of his story uh, necessity because that, that's just that's one film that boggles my mind at how it won it was so many stronger films lined up. And this is just, I mean, I guess it's there's some kind of love for the creation of the American city or something similar, but it's so bloated, so, so absurdly melodramatic. So it's just, I, I, I guess people have just had completely different views of what was a good movie because there's so many fantastic films and performances from that year. And this one is net. And I know a lot of people, like Adam mentioned that they, quite dislike several Academy Award Best Picture winners. Uh, I'm not in that category. I think that almost all Academy Award winners at least are decent, if not good. But there are two films that are active dislikes for me. Uh, actually, three, The Greatest Show on Earth as well. But that is uh, <laughs> The Broadway Melody and Cimarron. In, in the case of uh, Calvacade, though, which is probably the most, or one of the most hated and dismissed Best Picture winners, I have to say, I went into that with that expectation. That actually was quite a good movie for me. It's extremely melodramatic. And I'm talking extreme melodrama. But it's still a really nice family story, just 
going through all of these generations. It has a heartfelt grief as well. So I'm pretty surprising developments in there. It's essentially like a well-made, compressed soap opera from the 30s, but at a much higher scale. And, and I actually think you could possibly have enjoyed that, Saul, even more than me. Yeah, I don't know, Chris. I really dislike melodrama. So by trying to upsell as a melodrama, you've sort of convinced me that I'm probably not going to like the film. Uh, look, it's something that I might give a go at some stage, but I don't think it's any priority for me. Yeah, in that case, you'll just hate it like everybody else. Don't worry about it. Yeah, on that subject, I should mention that there are probably, I think, a little over 20 Best Picture winners that I haven't seen. And a lot of them are those less heralded, let's say, uh, films from the 30s and 50s, like Cavalcade and uh, Greatest Show on Earth and also Around the World in 80 Days. And also a recent one, Crash. I'm actually surprised it hasn't come up. I haven't seen it, but it has such a terrible reputation. Yeah, that was actually my next question. I just can't believe no one has mentioned Crash because that is really one of the weakest Best Picture winners as well. I mean, talking about melodrama and taking itself too seriously. I mean, this is a film that probably won for very political reasons, for people thinking that they were tackling racism in a very serious way. But it ends up just feeling completely comical because all of the elements of it are just so extremely overblown that it just becomes cringeworthy. I mean, that's such a weak film, without a doubt, one of the worst winners. Hey, Chris, you, you asked us to pick one worst picture movie. So if we didn't mention Crash, I don't think it's because anyone here loves it, but uh, just that I limited myself to one. No, no, Crash Crash is terrible. I assume we all hate Crash. Maybe, maybe, maybe Saul feels differently. I actually haven't seen Crush. We seem to keep mentioning those 10 or so films that I haven't seen, and Crush is another one that I've avoided because I only heard pretty terrible things about it when it came out, or not so much when it came out, when it started to get picked up for awards season. Uh, the interesting thing about Crush is that it's also intriguing for me because I know there was a lot of politics going on at the time. I was heavily invested in the IMDb message boards at the time, and there was a lot of things going down. A lot of people didn't like Brokeback Mountain and they didn't like its portrayal of gay cowboys and there was a lot of things from conservative people about having a film about promoting homosexuality, apparently, depending how you read it, as a best picture winner is not a way to go. So there's a lot of heated discussion about Brokeback Mountain and I know Crash was seen as a bit of an alternative and then when Crash won... You had all the things like people were posting, you know, Google search results that if you typed, um, I'm, I'm happy that Crash won, it came back with, did you mean I'm happy that Crash won? And they got a lot of hate, a lot of negativity since it actually won the Oscar. Much more negativity than when before it won the Oscar. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm a bit intrigued about Crash, but I'm not expecting it to be a good film. I'm not expecting it to be terrible either, but I know that Paul Haggis is a bit of an overwrought uh, writer when it comes to writing, so I'm expecting it to be about average. But no, it's one of those films I've decided I've got no reason to prioritise it at the moment. I think, you know, you're, you're right, Saul, uh, in that it's it's not a terrible movie, isn't it? It's, it's well made. It's, it's in some roles well acted. Uh, but it's what Chris said about how I think a lot of people voted for this movie because they confused a movie about an important topic with a good movie. It is about an important topic. It just deals with it in this sort of ham-fisted, overwrought manner. 
And to some people, though, the fact that it touches on controversial issues itself is a, a marker of quality. And I think that is a very common problem with the Oscars and with awards in general. It's also true with festivals uh, that the political importance of a film often takes precedence over its aesthetic merit. I mean, it's not necessarily a problem. It's just a feature, I suppose. And that's what leads to stuff like crash winning. Another example of mine is one that uh, most people love. There are only four Best Picture winners that I dislike. So I'm like Chris, I'm generally positive on Best Picture winners. But three of them are from the 90s. One of them is Braveheart. And the other two are American Beauty and uh, Schindler's List. I actually hate Schindler's List. I know that's not a very popular opinion. But I think it's another case of a film, even if you love it, that certainly won because it felt so important. Wow, Mathieu, you're bringing in a controversial topic. I also dislike Schindler's List. It's also something I'm hesitant to say because people have a very genuine and, and well-intentioned emotional involvement with that movie. So I, I could never begrudge anyone for having deep admiration for Schindler's List. My feelings on it are complicated, and there's no way to divide it, my feelings from my being a Jew and having you know ancestors who were killed in the Holocaust. But um, it, essentially, it comes down to this, is that you know, and this is something that a friend of mine told me Kubrick once said about Schindler's List. I have no idea if that's true, but apparently Kubrick said the Holocaust was about 7 million people dying. Schindler's List is about a thousand people living. And to me, it's just very much a piece with Spielberg's worst tendencies towards sentimentality. Obviously, you know, I, 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 like I said, I, I'm, I respect people who have a much different opinion on it. Okay, I'm definitely in the uh, camp of people who strongly admire Schindler's List in that it's always been one of the uh, top 10 best written, best directed films that I've seen from the entire 1990s. I don't think it's a problem that it's about a thousand people surviving. I don't think it's even about that. It's not a film about the Holocaust. The Holocaust is part of the setting there. It's the backdrop. The film is about the character progression, the Oscar Schindler character, and how he first starts out by saving the Jews as a selfish act. He's doing, he's basically in it to get money, but then by the end of the film, it's completely progressed from that, and he's actually starting to look at it as a human being. So what I really like about the film is the Schindler character. It's like a incredibly complex character arc, one that I haven't really seen mirrored in very many films since then or before then. And you've also got the Ray Fiennes character in there also, Amon Goeth, a Nazi in there. Um, he's got an incredibly complex character also, and he sort of wrestles with this idea of having mercy and then not quite being able to act on that. It's an incredibly dynamic film, and I think it's awful that, okay, I hate to use that word, but I think it's awful that people would integrate the film or put it down because it's not really representing the Holocaust and everything that it was, because I don't think that was ever the intention. I mean, I do know that when Spielberg was filming that people come out with him with different stories, and some of them did make it into the film, like about the uh, gun not working, even though the Nazi kept trying it over and over. There are different snippets of it which capture the times a little bit, but the same way that Cabaret would use, you know, bits of the uprising of Nazi Germany in the backdrop, but it's not what the film was about. It's an amazing character study. I haven't seen it recently because it has a very devastating emotional impact on me. 
And yeah, I just find it, um, you know, maybe just supporting is maybe the best term that somebody would actually think something with such a complex screenplay in there and such multi-layered performances would be one of the weakest Best Picture nominees or Best Picture winners. We've had so many uh, lame and second-rate films that have sort of made it to the top over the years. Uh, I, don't know, I don't want to keep talking forever about this. Uh, American Beauty is another film that I like a lot and which I've seen a lot, but um, I'm not probably quite as passionate about that one. I do think American Beauty is incredibly well-filmed, incredibly clever and very witty and very well-performed. And, of course, it's got an amazing score by Thomas Newman that incredibly got overlooked for the Oscar in its day. But anyway, look, I've been rambling on for too long, so I'll let somebody else take over. And I'm sorry if I'm getting emotional here. Without getting it into, into it too much, I think what you mentioned about uh, Schindler's List not being a weak film, is it's, I mentioned that it was my, well, among my least favorites. I guess maybe I said worst, but it's, you know, it's subjective. I'm not saying that Schindler's List is not well performed. I'm not saying that it's not well shot. I think it's gorgeous, actually. I think the cinematography is, is amazing. Then the same with American Beauty, really, a film I also strongly dislike, but it looks great. However, those are films I strongly dislike. American Beauty, because I think it's extremely smug. And Schindler's List, in large part because of the, some of the things that Adam mentioned, I think about the worst tendencies that Spielberg has. I think the, the best example for me is The Little Red Girl. I think when you have a tragedy so, so strong, right, you don't need to employ such uh, obviously manipulative techniques. And I find it almost insulting, personally. But, you know, it, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything about people who love Schindler's List. I mean, most people do, so. Yeah, I don't know. It's just... um. A very, I guess, alien take on the film for me. I don't find it manipulative at all. I just think it tackles a very complex web and that it's trying to be this extremely in-depth character study, which it is, and manages to include bits and pieces of stuff on the, on the side there to sort of paint the backdrop of what the times were like. And there's different techniques in there that are all quite interesting. And I don't know, look, it's probably a subject for another podcast, but I've always liked Spielberg as a filmmaker. I've never quite understood people who bash him. He does do a lot of popcorn entertainment films, but he also does a lot of very serious films and manages to present them well uh, with complex characters, uh, interesting performances. And I think there's only maybe one or two Spielberg films that I've ever disliked. So I pretty much know when I sit down and watch a Spielberg film, unless it's called The Post. I actually know that I'm going to be in for a pretty entertaining ride, as well as one that's going to sort of cap captivate me intellectually. So, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting to hear that sort of take on Schindler's List. I don't really have much more to say beyond that. I actually have one question for, for Mathieu here. Is, that, is this your general view of most films? Because, I mean, this is essentially who he is. He's extremely emotionally manipulative with high degrees of like the way he works with music, the way he focuses in on faces, etc. It's very in your face. And it's very clear where he wants the audience's emotions to go. But that is also part of his talent, if you will. That's also part of what makes so many of his films great. And it, it's what makes him such an effective filmmaker. So for me, I, I think uh, Schindler's List was a great film. I don't put it among the best. 
I, I'm not sure if I agree with Saul that it's as deep a character study, at, at least not for me, but it's certainly two really interesting characters. It's certainly a really complex story, and it's certainly a really, really wonderfully made film. But you then also have some films like, for instance, War Horse, not to get completely off topic here, which is just almost in the crash camp, where it just you see the way he zooms in on that one tear, or the, the, just how perfect he makes it. Which is to say, he, he does that extreme overt sentimentality to such extreme, and, and I will use the word perfection because it's so well shot, but he does it in such an extreme way that it just becomes completely cringeworthy. So is this complaint against Schindler's List a more general complaint against Spielberg, or is it more specifically because he handled this topic in a similar way to how he handled many of his other dramas? Kind of both, to an extent. I am not a fan of his sentimentality in general, but it doesn't bother me as much in other films as it does in this one, in part because of the subject matter. There are also other things in the film, but this is not a Schindler's List podcast. So There are some Spielberg I love, but it's ten, it tends to be the early ones, and so these are less uh, sentimental. I don't have anything against a director who is manipulative necessarily. I love Hitchcock and all he does is manipulate the audience. But I think the way Spielberg does it, it can get on my nerve. To swing this back to best picture winners and best picture winners from the 90s in particular, because it does seem that we're all singling out the 90s as a particularly poor decade for best picture films. And one of my least favorites, if which we haven't gotten to yet, and I'm surprised we haven't gotten to yet, given its general reputation, is Forrest Gump, which, at least to me, shares so many similarities uh, of the cringeworthiness of, say, Crash, just without the added social messaging. Because here, as well, everything is blown up to make you feel something, and you have this character, and you have the relationship so thin, so overtly emotional, like just you just feel exactly how it wants you to feel. It's just I, I honestly don't think it's well done. Like some of them feels tragically comical, like the ways that they pa pasted in for Jump, for instance, in old footage. I know that's done as comedy in the film, but I was essentially laughing at it. I just really don't think this was a, a good film at all. Yeah, Chris, I'm with you. I, I also very much disliked Forrest Gump. I remember seeing it when I was a kid. I, I guess I was probably about nine years old. And I remember even then thinking, it's very entertaining. There's a lot of comedy here, but something doesn't quite feel right. Something feels very artificial. And maybe that's not a fair criticism, because to me, it's, it's really, it's a fantasy movie. It's just the, the structure or the content of the fantasy that I, I really disliked. And in some ways, I, I feel like it's a very conservative fantasia on 1960s, 1970s themes. It has this very sort of aggressive tendency in terms of, you know, uh, the hero is this sort of simple country kid who just wants to serve his country, and the, the villains are the hippies and the black power people. I actually quite like Forrest Gump. It's not in my top five films, top 10 films. It's probably not even my top 20 films or 1994, but it would definitely be in the top 50 films. The big impressive thing for me about it was the visual effects. I guess, yeah, maybe Chris found some of it a bit funny. 
but I really liked the way that Tom Hanks was inserted into all the archive footage. And the whole film is about the character experiencing this whole slice of American history without being able to properly understand it. And I don't know, I just thought the whole way it was done was very interesting and quite captivating. It is a film that I've seen three or four times, and the more often that I see it, uh, the more mawkish and sentimental it seems, but I um, just really like the way that it's told, the whole thing is done. I think Gary Sinise's performance in there is excellent, and the way his character sort of progresses, and his friendship with the Tom Hanks character is well handled. So, look, it's not one of the best, best picture winners for me. It's not one of the worst. It's probably somewhere in the middle for me. But I think definitely the technical achievement of it is maybe more impressive for me, and Gary Sinise's performance is more impressive for me than maybe the overall film is. I haven't seen Forrest Gump since I was a kid and loved it. I'm afraid this might be a brave heart thing, like for Adam, so I'm a little scared of revisiting it. But let's try to spin the positivity around there a little in the second half of the best versus worst, or as we did here, to finish with more of a bang, worst versus best. So let me ask you again, what is your single favorite? Best picture winner of all time. Gosh, uh, I find it impossible to pick just one. Um, someone said earlier that they thought the list of best picture winners is actually very good and that there are very few bad movies. There might be a few weak movie there. I have to say, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I think overall the, the list has just a, a large quantity of amazing movies. It's hard to pick one without slighting uh, other great movies all About Eve, Casablanca, All Quiet on the Western Front, The Bridge on the River Kwai. These are all wonderful movies that I love. Um, it's a cliche, but you know, I, I think um, the Godfather movies, one and two, would, would, would have to be my choice, although I'll, I'll put in a special word for Wings, which I'm guessing is probably not a popular choice. Um, Wings is, is one of my all-time favorite movies. For many people, I think it's just an answer to a trivia question. What was the first Best Picture winner? I was lucky enough to see a restoration of it on the big screen with the hand-tinted original tiles so that the explosions in the movie actually are not black and white. There are fiery oranges and reds. And it's, it's simply one of the best visual spectacles I've ever seen on a screen. I can't believe you actually wings as the best Academy Award Best Picture winner of all time. I just, it boggles my mind. I actually completely agree with you on the one element you said. This is a beautifully made film. It has some absolutely stunning shots, especially scenes like the swing scene, the airplanes. It's absolutely gorgeous to look at and experience, and I think it would be even better in the cinema. I quite like Wings. It's it's a good movie, but it's also a movie I have a bit of animosity because, as you know, this was not officially the best picture winner of that year because the award didn't exist yet. This was the very first year, and they also had the award for best artistic picture, which went to Sunrise, and it was retrospectively decided which one of those awards corresponded to the best picture award. And they went with Wings over Sunrise. And if they had not done that, Sunrise would easily have been my favorite best picture winner of all time. Because it's at the top of its game. It's so visually beautiful and immersive. 
you can see each shot put up a, like a painting and with the emotion at the center it's just absolutely spectacular to dream yourself wearing that film every single time so uh, that's why i have a decent bit of uh dislike for just the pick of wings just because it went against like, what i would consider the best and it despite being so good i think it also reflects the academy's wish to just nominate big spectacles at this time because essentially wings winning is to me at least the same as avatar winning it, those two films are about the same in terms of historical value in that they're just glorious epic films from a technical perspective but i don't love the films themselves when it comes to trying to work out the greatest best picture winners for me I think some of them have already been named. Adam did mention The Godfather, which is very high up there for me. The two which are probably the um, highest ones, the ones that I hold the most esteem, uh, I can't choose one, so I'm sorry about that. One of them is The Silence of the Lambs. I think it's an incredibly uh, well-made film, and it's a film that each time I watch it, I pick up more about it and just really like the way the editing is especially really good in it towards the end with some of the misdirection about what exactly is going on and just the interplay there between Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins is incredibly well done. The other film that pops to mind for me is Midnight Cowboy. I think that's um, just an amazing film about this sort of uneasy friendship that develops between these two characters. And again, it's a film which has got some incredibly powerful editing in there, some really great music in there, and yeah, a little bit of a sad, maybe bittersweet sort of film, but yeah, one that's definitely resonated a lot with me. So along with Saul, I'm going to try to help out, help out the 90s a bit, because we criticized a lot of the 90s winners in the previous part. But my favorite Best Picture winner is Unforgiven. And it feels appropriate that this would be my favorite, because it's a film that's very much about the legacy of its star and director and its genre, so really appropriate for the Oscars. It parallels the man who shot Liberty Valance in the way it explores the legend of the West and the weight it has on its characters and implicitly on the people who shaped it, the printers of the legend. And it does kind of the same thing that Liberty Valance did in transitioning from classic to revisionist. You have kind of Clint Eastwood closing the door on the era of Westerns that he helped start up. Its opening and closing scenes are these beautiful tableaux set at dusk. And in French, there's this notion of Western crépusculaire, which means dusky Western or twilight Western. And Unforgiven is like the poster child for that, giving us a melancholy look at this essential American mythos, which was so influential, especially through the medium of film. And it's there, Unforgiven, to essentially destroy all that, to strip away all the nobility and the artifice of the Western, especially with the final scene that is a tragedy of this man who cannot escape the terrible world he comes from and the terrible life he's had. It's the polar opposite of the classic Western hero who helps society transition from lawlessness into civilization. He is the problem and as much as he wants to, he cannot be part of the solution. He cannot escape the vicious cycle of violence. And so I find it to be a daring and thoughtful look by Eastwood at his own persona, really, and just generally a great film. I'm just going to jump in to salute my, the choices of my co-hosts here. Unforgiven is, is a beautiful movie. See it sort of as the fulfillment of Eastwood's Western arc. 
he was always a revisionist Western star. He was never a classic Western star uh, in, in the mold of a, a John Wayne or you know a William uh, Hart. But his his revisionist character traditionally was the man with no name, uh, the sort of laconic, violent, uh, emotionally remote um, figure of the Dollars trilogy. I thought that that arc sort of without without going way back into our Western episode from a few weeks ago, I thought that arc reached a culmination in High Plains Drifter, but it, it reached a sort of um, a sentimental, not, not sentimental, it reached a, a legacy-defining uh, measure in, in Unforgiven, because in Unforgiven, Eastwood really went for realism, much more than bravado or fantasy that he had in his earlier Westerns. And I also want to salute uh, The Silence of the Lambs, for me as well, this is a movie that reveals more nuances every time I watched it. Certainly when I, I first saw it, I just thought it was uh, an excellent thriller movie. Um, it's only in, in subsequent watchings that I've, I've really come to recognize some of the feminist themes in the movie, which I, I didn't realize at all as a teenager, but I think now are probably the most important part of the movie. Yeah, I think I would be really interested in rewatching Lambs with that in mind. I mean, I had had originally... Uh, which is that it's a really, really strong thriller with a spectacular central performance by Anthony Hopkins. But in, in my opinion, people often just associate the film with his you know, stellar performance and just how uneasy they feel there. But so much of the film is not about uh, Anthony Hopkins, so much of it is far more conventional thriller that works really, really well. But for me, it has never reached, went that extra mile to become great, phenomenal cinema. It's just a really strong thriller to me, but I would really like to rewatch it with more context and more uh, ideas of what I can read into it. I would say I agree on Silence of the Lambs, both as a great film in general, but also as one that grew on me with uh, rewatching. And also I agree that it has a great central performance, but I would argue that it's Jodie Foster, though I think Hopkins is also good. Yes, Jodie Foster is the uh, central part of Silence of the Lambs. Anthony Hopkins only has, can't remember the exact number, it's less than 20 minutes of screen time, even though he won the Best Lead Actor Oscar for it. The whole film is about Jodie Foster, and like uh, Adam said, there's a whole lot of feminist se- uh, themes in there, and it's basically the setup sort of comes down to the fact that Double Actor is the most decent male character in the film, which is a really interesting setup for it, but a lot of it's just about her going through the Academy as a female member, but also some of the things from her past there. Have the lamb stop screaming, Clarice. Uh, there's just a lot going in there, which I've always found to be very dynamic when watching it. And I'll just uh, second the choice of Unforgiven. I don't know if they'll be in my top 10 best picture winners or definitely be in the top 20 best picture winners. An incredibly classy film. I've always liked Clint Eastwood as a director, and Unforgiven is definitely one of his strongest directing efforts. Oh, something interesting, which I might also just pick up there. Uh, Chris has mentioned in the chat there that he doesn't think Jodie Foster is a great actress in general, and I'd probably agree with that. I There aren't that many performances from her that I really like. I mean, she was good in Carnage. Some of her 70s comedy work as a child actress, and things like Freaky Friday I kind of like, but her performance in The Accused did nothing for me, and a lot of her other performances weren't really up my alleyway, but I thought she was a really great choice for the casting of Grease in Silence of the Lambs, 
And though when the role was recast with Julian Moore in Less I'm Mistaken in some of the later films, I don't think it worked quite as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting as well because I personally view Julianne Moore to be a far superior actress in general, but I also completely agree. I mean, she's, it doesn't work anywhere near as well in the sequel. And yes, I also think Unforgiven is an excellent choice. It's such a strong, incredibly strong film. I, I, it's another film that has gone slightly down in my estimation since I originally saw it, and it was one of my all-time favorite films, but I still view it as just completely brilliant with... Eastwood versus Hackman, two great performances, and just the way that plot works and how it corresponds with traditional westerns is just absolutely fantastic. Now, I, I already talked a bit about Sunrise, which is a bit of an unofficial member here, I suppose. It's beyond that, I think most of my top favorites are fairly ordinary. I would obviously list the Godfather films as being among them. I would also list The Deer Hunter, which just does such a spectacular spectacular job at building tension between these characters and taking us on this road into complete madness and unlike so many people i love i love the first 40 minutes to an hour before it actually becomes a real war movie and in fact i think that's one of the some of the strongest scenes in the films i think that film really really delivers I also wanted to highlight one film I don't think anyone would have talked about, and that's All the King's Men from 1949, which so long before the media circus and the complete spectacle really came about, and before, I, I would say, uh, the, slight, the slightly superior face in the crowd, which also looks at similar media performances, this film, it's just so colossal, it's the way it looks at this one singular politician and managed to and, and this world around him how it reacts how it affects his family and it is incredible incredible central performance by brother crawford I, I would argue his best and it's just so explosive so hard hitting and it just doesn't get brought up enough and i, I don't really understand why it disappeared the way it did i was also blown away by all the king's men at the time it's not a film that I've seen recently, so it probably didn't spring to mind immediately as one of the best Best Picture winners out there. But definitely at the time, I was really captivated by Broderick Crawford's performance in there. And yeah, everything he said about there, about media sensationalism and power getting to his head, I thought it was an incredibly well done film. Uh, one other film that I love among the Best Picture winners that I don't think most people do and it's not one of the most famous ones it's uh, a man for all seasons the um, essentially a thomas more biopic except it's focused on his kind of fight with uh, henry the eighth played by uh, robert shaw and if nothing else it features two great performances robert shaw as as henry the eighth and uh, paul scofield as thomas more i think he was mostly a theater actor so i don't think he has been in that many movies but he is he he might be my favorite best actor winner that's a very interesting comment, Matthew, because I have seen A Man for All Seasons. It is likewise a film that I've not seen recently. The thing that I remember most uh, potently from the film is Robert Shaw's performance. I've always liked Robert Shaw as an actor. I thought he really came alive uh, with his King Henry performance in there. I don't actually remember that much of Paul Schofield's performance offhand. He did do a couple of really great performances in the 90s, and I think he's absolutely excellent in 
quiz show. So if you haven't seen Quiz Show, I would highly recommend that. And unless I'm mistaken, I think he actually got an Oscar nomination for that one also. I just want to briefly circle back to uh, a movie I mentioned before, but kind of didn't really give justice, which is The Godfather. And several of you have also mentioned it. And I think the reason I, I passed it over and ended up discussing Wings more is because everyone loves The Godfather. Um, it's one of the most universally beloved and admired movies. Uh, I think it's number two on the IMDb top 250 list. So it's kind of easy to take it for granted. And also it feels like there's not a lot to say about it that hasn't been said before, but it feels like it wouldn't be doing justice to the best pictures or the Godfather without mentioning it. It's an extraordinary movie. It's technically near perfect, beautiful music, beautiful photography a complex story that interweaves many genuine characters into an overall picture of, I guess you could call it American capitalism at its worst. And it's a movie that's sort of so good that we, we kind of just, you know, take it for granted, but uh, it is an extraordinary achievement. Yeah, I listed The Godfather as likely my favorite official Best Picture winner as well. And uh, yeah, I, I jumped over for exactly the same reason. I think it really goes to show that, you know, this is both such a brilliantly directed film. It's obviously very slow paced in the sense that there's so much character developments and sub stories going into this that you know, people even forget this day, like the amount of time spent in uh, Italy, for instance. Most people, when they remember back, don't think of it. But when you see it, it's still so well done. The way this builds up tension throughout. And one thing that I really just want to focus on is Al Pacino and Marlon Brando's central performances, because both of them have, of course, given such fantastic performances before, but the way they went into their roles, the way Don Cassell went into their roles, like this is not just a gangster film, which there are so many of. I mean, this is a gangster film with iconic performances, iconic dialogue, it's just the central conflicts, the, the scenes of even some of the, the standard murders are remembered forever. And of course, the iconic music. I think if the, the reason why I didn't want to speak about The Godfather is that I really think to do that, you need a full podcast to do it, Like especially if you want to do <laughs> uh, the full trilogy. And I'm essentially pitching that as well now. So yeah, let's do that. Let's all sit down and rewatch The Godfather trilogy and talk that out because that will be incredible. It's an interesting topic there about the uh, Godfather trilogy because I do agree that the first film is absolutely brilliant. I did say before that it would probably be my number three for my best picture choices, the best picture winners. It's just an amazing character arc, what the Marco Corleone character has and the way he sort of progresses along the whole film and the closing doors at the end there is just some perfect and amazing way to end off a film. And of course, yes, so many iconic parts in there. Uh, just little things uh, running around with the uh, orange in the mouth. Things like waking up with the uh, horse's head. But yeah, incredibly powerful film. Uh, the Godfather Part 2, I've never liked as much as the original film. The second time round, I thought of, sort of saw it as a little bit, maybe not quite pointless, but because the first film was so perfect as it is, I wasn't sure really how much the second film added on to it. So it might be something interesting to podcast about. I've actually never seen the third Godfather film because the reviews about that are really 
so mixed and everybody keeps bashing Sofia Coppola's performance in it. But I guess there might be something to finally check out if we do a podcast on the Godfather trilogy. Well, I'm very similar to Saul in that I also agree with all of you that The Godfather is great. Uh, it would have been my second pick for best picture, uh, for best best picture. And I also agree that The Godfather Part 2 is unnecessary. And I also haven't seen Part 3. So basically just repeating what Saul said. <laughs> I, I, I'm actually shocked that a whole of my calls now don't view uh, The Godfather Part 2 on more or less the same footing as The Godfather because, I mean, this is almost a universal view that these films are approximately the same in their general degree of this perfection, if you will. Um, and for a long time, I even preferred part two. And I think the reason why, though I do prefer the first one today, is because it is actually a more personal film for Coppola. He had been trying to make a story about a father and a son at the same age and connect those dots and had so much invested in it that he couldn't do it. And the Godfather films were not something he ever technically wanted to do. He did do The Godfather 2, and especially The Godfather 3, for the money. But I think the fact that he brought this very specific idea, this very specific lens of just seeing a father and son at the same time, and got Robert De Niro in there giving such an incredible performance, having Al Pacino keep developing as Michael Corleone, and, as I have to say, Don Cassell, which is... Like, he did so few films. He's such an incredible actor, and he really just brought Fredo to life. And I think that in just taking the story onwards, bringing in more melancholy, just the way everything is actually, in a way, wrapped up, I think it hit just as strongly as the first film. So some other Best Picture winners that haven't been mentioned yet that I think are towards the top of their game We'll try not to say too much about them so it doesn't go on for too long. Um, I think Chicago is an incredibly well-done film. It's a film I've watched multiple times before, and I really like the whole satire of it. It's incredibly well-edited. It's a very kinetic film and very different from the average musical out there, so that's definitely an all-time favourite. I think Amadeus is very dynamic because we're seeing everything is filtered through Salieri's eyes, so it's all this filtered subjectivity. The approaching Mozart, uh, Platoon, the Oliver Stone film, again, an incredibly well done film, really good use of music in there also, and interesting look of like good versus evil and war. On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando's performance and Rod, um, Steger, Rod Steiger, with their performances in there, definitely very well done film and an incredibly well acted and very powerful film, really great music score. And I might also mention Annie Hall. It's not my favourite Woody Allen film, but I think Woody Allen's an incredibly dynamic director. He does a lot of interesting and artistic things. And Annie Hall is definitely one of the most creative and unusual romantic comedies in the best possible way. So that'll be towards the top of there, but it's not one of my top five Woody Allen films, but among the best picture winners. Definitely one that stands out to me. While we are on the subject of musicals, I actually also like Chicago, which I think is not the majority opinion. But my favorite musical that won a Best Picture is West Side Story. And I think it might be my favorite musical period. I think it's just gorgeous retelling of the Romeo and Juliet story. And America is such a daring song for its period. And I, I love it just overall. Uh, also, for other honorable mentions, I would 
to say uh, All About Eve is such a witty film with such an amazing central performance by Betty Davis. And I also love Spotlight for more recent winners. Uh, we were talking earlier about me disliking emotional manipulation. And I think Spotlight is a great example of a film that really refuses to be emotionally manipulative. Oh, I actually thought Spotlight was incredibly manipulative at times. I did like it overall. I thought it was very well acted. I thought Michael Keaton had a really great character in there, had a really great performance in there. But just some of the things in Spotlight, like there's a part there where the reporters are talking about a story that one of the people they interviewed recounted to them, and they just say that and they just say it to each other. So we don't actually see the person who was affected by the abuse recount that story we just see them recount it so i don't know there were different parts in there i was a bit and i did like spotlight a lot but i thought the way that it approached child abuse and abuse of power i thought it didn't quite really show the actual impact on the victims themselves a lot of it was about the reporter side of things which is interesting in itself but i don't know if it was necessarily the most powerful way the topic could have been presented I might also just say that What About Eve, I do like that film a lot, but I'd say it's all about Anne Baxter and not uh, Betty Davis. And West Side Story, yeah, not a bad film, but George Shakira, so I have no idea how he won the Best Supporting Actor for it. Just regarding Spotlight, I'm going to steal your defense and say that Spotlight is not a film about child abuse. Uh, it's a film about journalism, and that's why it doesn't show that, and I think that's part of what... I mean, when I say it's not manipulative, that it could have gone there and it didn't. And yes, Anne Baxter obviously is the main character in All About Eve, but I think the standout performance, though Anne Baxter is good also, is Betty Davis. Yeah, it's okay. Look, I don't want to deflect this and make this a whole spotlight conversation. I did like Spotlight, the film. I thought it was interesting. I just, uh, I thought there was a bit of an emotional distance in there, which was really odd i get that it's more about the reporters and them investigating it and how you know new and shocking all of it is to them but i also found it was hard to really feel for that shock because we sort of have the information presented to us at a bit of a distance so like the film is expecting us to accept and when we do accept in a in culture and society that child abuse is horrible and it has all these devastating psychological impacts but by not seeing it, uh, yeah, I don't know. Look, it's a subject for another podcast. I'm not going to delve into it too much. Uh, I did like Spotlight a lot, but with some reservations there in terms of what they chose to show and what they chose not to show. I already provided a, a list in my opening remark of, you know, about 10 other Best Picture winners that I thought were excellent. I don't want to, you know, uh, keep on going on them. And I think that, you know, most of the ones that I think are really great have been mentioned. But I just thought I'd mention one that, that hasn't been mentioned, which is All Quiet on the Western Front. It's easy to forget. It's been a long time since it came out. It was one of the first Best Picture winners. To me, and, and I, I think to, to many people at the time, it was sort of the definitive uh, World War I movie. To the extent that uh, after it was made, uh, there weren't many World War I movies for a while. They only sort of started appearing again in the lead up to World War II. I just thought, you know, it, even to this day, it's it, one of the definitive anti-war pictures for me. I agree that All Quiet on the Western Front is an incredibly well done film, especially for its time. I didn't like the lead performance too much. And I thought it was a bit on the melodramatic side, but the actual story itself is incredibly powerful and incredibly powerful for a very early sound era war film. Yeah, I think I have pretty much the same uh, assessment as all. 
like I think a lot of these early sound films from the 30s are struggling a little bit to set up, but it did it really well. And my main issue with it would mostly be performances. Though I will just drop one recommendation that doesn't fit into this podcast at all, but that's West Front 18 by Pabst from the very same year. And it's, in my opinion, at least just as strong. But I would like to, again, take our focus back a little bit as well, because we talked a lot about how poor a lot of the uh, winners from the 1930s were with Cimarron and uh, Calvacade and, and so many others. But I, I do think the 30s was quite a hit and miss decade for Best Pictures, in that they actually had some really, really strong selections just showing some of the best things that Hollywood, especially star-led Hollywood, could do at the time. So I'm talking, for instance, about Grand Hotel with all of the intersecting storylines and just so many incredible performances and actors. Like, that's just a film you get completely overwhelmed by, where you, you know, you have, <laughs> you actually have, you know, Garbo, both Barrymore brothers, John Crawford, uh, Wallace Berry, and this an endless, endless amount of massive names uh, with great dialogues just bringing their best to the screen. And it's just shot so well, too. I, I also can't believe that nobody's mentioned Frank Capra's It Happened One Night. I just can't believe it. I mean, it's one of the best comedies that's I would say, also ever made and, all, and ever won uh, best picture because comedies almost never win. And, you know, this Clark Gable and Colette Colbert matching up together and this... It's, it's just such a great film. I, I also want to bring your attention to one film that almost never gets mentioned at all, which is The Life of Emilia Sula, which just has an, another one of those spectacular central performances here by Paul Mooney. And Paul Mooney is really one of the unsung, extremely talented actors of the 30s. I would argue that he's, in the American context at least, the best actor of the 30s. He always delivers just these incredible performances. It's shot so well, you can feel the time and you can feel the experience that Sola went through and which uh, inspired him. So it's just an incredibly great work. There's also some other really massive works I'm shocked didn't get mentioned, such as The Last Emperor by Bertolucci. The visuals, the impact, the way it's made, it's absolutely spectacular. And since I'm mentioning way too many films now, I would like to segue to a type of conclusion or at least a bit of a finishing remarks in just the way that the academy has seemed to change a little bit um i still think there's a bit of a struggle in what gets nominated and what's won but if you look at the type of films that usually won we see massive commercial successes these huge crowd pleasers usually just the best of what the big audience could bring to the table I think we have seen over the last decade or so, even a little bit longer, a, a larger and larger interest in something a little more uh, cinematic and also smaller films. Now, this, this can be traced back to, you know, obviously extremely small budget films like The Hurt Locker winning. And then suddenly the artist, you know, a silent film or mostly silent, which is also one of my favorite Best Picture winners, actually getting that win, despite being so different from what everyone else 
we're expecting from a best picture film. Like I really do think, even though it's seen as such a safe and relative more dull movie now after it won best picture, like this was not made with these intentions at all. And it's just so daring to make a silent film in this era and do it just so well and with so much love. And it really just changed my expectations for what a best picture could be. Because at least for me, when you make a silent film in you know, 2011, that has far more art house connotations. And I do think that seeped into the spotlight more and more. I mean, we did see, and I didn't mention that films like Amor got nominated, films like uh, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life got nominated. And then in 2000, uh, or at least for a ceremony for 2014, Birdman won. And I love Birdman. I think that the way it's shot, the way it seems like one singular take, which is, by the way, something we will do a podcast on in the near future. And the way it carries through that intensity, just the incredible, incredible intensity that Michael Keaton brings that lead role. It, it's arguably one his best performance. And the way it plays around with forms and expectations and even plays into surrealism. Like, again, that's one of those things that I just would not have expected from a best picture film, even though Annie Hall did some of these things long, long before. And we saw this even later with Moonlight, which is another one that wouldn't necessarily place among the very best best picture winners, but it is such a visual film. It's even a bit of a minimalist film. And again, not what I would have expected. And this carries all the way through to Parasite winning last year. So I do think you've seen, even though Films like Green Book, which is what you would have expected from the 90s win, still gets in there. I do think that there's more of a power struggle or a, a different type of demographic voting in now. And I think that would be like a really good thing to look at as a closing remark. Like, How has the Academy changed and how do you expect it to change in the future? And as we mentioned a little bit in the opening slight bit of psychoanalyzation to figure out why the voters have voted the way they do. I'm a really big fan of Parasite and Moonlight. For me, they're both within the top two films of their respective years. However, if I'm honest with myself, I think they won due to political reasons more than anything else. With Moonlight, it was all on the back of the hashtag Oscars So White campaign with uh, no actors and actresses of colour being nominated in 2014 and 2015, which I hate to break it to you, but there weren't that many great performances anyway, uh, which is probably a problem with casting and with the roles that are being offered in there. Uh, like Will Smith got a, I think, Golden Globe nomination for Concussion, but that wasn't a very good performance. So happy he didn't get an Oscar nomination for it. But there's a lot of sentiment there for hashtag Oscars so white. So I think Moonlight winning was sort of inevitable because the voting body sort of wanted to show that they're being a bit more progressive. So it's a great film. I'm really happy that it won. Whether it would have won under different conditions, I don't know. La La Land had all the precursors. Moonlight's actually, I think, the only film since maybe Braveheart that's actually won Best Picture without winning any of the precursors. 
So it didn't win the um, SAG Ensemble Award. It didn't win the uh, DGA Award. It didn't win the WGA Award. Didn't win the uh, Golden um, Globe, except for picture drama. So I guess it's slightly different. But there's all these precursors that it didn't win, and yet it still managed to succeed and win the Best Picture Oscar, which was really unusual, which plays into politics. And then you get Parasite, and I think that was also a lot of its... Some of it was the um, sentiment against Green Book winning against um, Roma, the uh, Alfonso Cuaron film, which a lot of people liked, and they really wanted to see a foreign language film win. There was also a lot of trying to get, I think, the distraction off Greta Gerwig being overlooked and not having any film or directors in the race. So it was a great idea was to all well, maybe we'll actually have our foreign language film winnings winner. So I think a lot of that played into it. And if you look at the precursors there, um, the stuff like um, you know, 1917 won the BAFTAs, won the Golden Globes, won the DGA Award, won the PGA Award, and all the precursors in there. And I feel very sorry for Sam Mendes because 1917 is an incredibly well-done film. And now he's got the distinction of being one of, I think it's like 10 directors, maybe less, who've actually won the DGA Award but haven't gone on to win the Oscar for Best Director. But I'm deflecting for a bit here. Uh, look, in terms of where the Oscars go in years to come, I think a lot of it will be determined by politics and what films the general public want to see winning or don't want to see winning. I think it's going to determine it more than anything else. Uh, I think things like Parasite winning and Moonlight winning, it's a bit more of an outlier. I know it was a pretty big thing when Moonlight did end up winning, but then you had more conventional stuff like Green Book winning in the meantime. So, yeah, I think it's up and down. I don't think we'll actually be seeing any trends noticeably changing over the next few years. Well, honestly, I think that I disagree quite strongly because even if politics play a part of it, and it always, always does, um, they could have picked far more conventional films to do it. Like the Green Book is just, you know, a completely, it's well acted, but fairly mediocre film in most regards. And it's still one, it won on the same kind of political bias in terms of highlighting a film with race and racism. But if you look at, say, 10, 20 years ago, it wouldn't even have been to be nominated. You wouldn't have seen a smaller film like that get a shot. And you would almost certainly not have seen Parasite get nominated. So I think that there has been a pretty colossal shift already, which start which there's always been a little element of this, but I think we have seen more and more films get at least get the shot, get their foot inside the door. Like uh, Terence Malick's uh, <laughs> which I keep going back to Tree of Life getting nominated. You do see a shift that way. Now, I don't think necessarily think that's as big as you could make it, because I, I do agree with Saul. A lot of this is a lot of this does come down to politics and appearances, but I think the fact that some of these you know, great, you could say auteur pieces even, uh, get a chance at the Oscars is a really interesting development in itself. Well, I, I agree with Chris. I think that politics always play a part in the Oscars. It's just the nature of the beast. And there is an impact in what the Oscars do. So I don't personally mind that politics get into it. It's just that it's can be different kinds of politics. Sometimes it's intro industry and sometimes it's a, maybe a broader thing. Regarding where the Oscars are going, Parasite is an interesting case. It's a film I really like, but I was not that happy to see it win Best Picture because to me, it is, it is the Academy overstepping its bounds in that 
It is not, it is the American film industry. And I am a little bothered by the idea that the Oscars see themselves as the ultimate awards body for the whole world. And so that they can nominate whatever they want and have whatever they want win. And that makes me a little uncomfortable because if you have Parasite winning Best Picture this year, that means that every other year, an American film was just the best film of the year. That's just what we thought. I don't know. There's something uncomfortable for me with that. But I do agree with Chris that the Academy seems to be more open-minded about the type of movies that get a shot. I think that's a very good point, Matthew. By having Parasite finally win after all these years, it sort of does give that sort of like sense that, oh, Journey finally had a foreign language film that was good enough to be crowned the best. So I think that is a bit of an unfortunate side effect. Um, I do think it's a good observation you make. I'm still happy that it won, but it does sort of make you think. But then again, I don't know how seriously people take the Oscars from decades and decades ago when you've got something like Tom Jones winning over eight and a half and Contempt. I don't think uh, people really take the lack of foreign language winners back uh, decades ago um, all that seriously. I, I don't actually mind, but I, I think you're spot on on the money there that that's the message you're sending out. This is the first foreign film that actually was good enough to win. And you know, you have, I think, if you count nominees before, there are about, I, I don't have it in my head right now, but I think it's like seven, eight films. I know that, you know, there was... Uh, that was actually in foreign language that over the years did make it into the best picture category. Many of them fairly recent. Obviously, they all were always nominated for best foreign film as well. They won that. Everybody knew they would win that because they were nominated for best picture. I think it's only one singular exception in the history of the Oscar where a foreign language film was nominated for best picture and didn't win best foreign film, which is a bit hilarious. But I, I don't mind when it happens because... I don't take the Oscars that seriously. I do think that the great benefits of the Oscars is first and foremost getting exposure to films. And when you have films like The Artist and also films like Parasite, getting that win, it just means that they're going to have a much, much bigger reach. So that's what I'm first and foremost interested in, just how these films get pushed. And I also like the idea that the game becomes more interesting and exciting. So I think that the messaging they're sending is really bad, but that the outcome is good. What sort of message then does it send when The Hurt Locker wins Best Director finally in 2008? Does that also then send a negative message that there were no great films from female directors in the 20th century? I don't know. Just something else to put out there. Well, in a way, yes. But I think it's mostly just because the Oscars was always centered as the American show. So they're selecting American industry films. It's always American industry films. I think if you look at women directing, there's always been dream, extreme minority, especially in mainstream Hollywood cinema. You haven't seen that many women directors get the chance to do those kinds of major films. I also do have a bit of a, let's say, a theory of why the Academy has started to change. And I wanted to bring this, it's a relatively article out, but whenever people talk about the Oscars, this is more or less the article or the study that shows up, which is from the Atlantic back in 2014, which showed that uh, 94% of the Academy voters are white, 76% of them are men, and 
the average age is 63. Most of us would have expected the average age to be quite high, but given how the academy is supposed to be the room for so many different professionals that are active, I think the fact that the average is at essentially retirement, meaning that you know, there's just so many people over 63. Like how many percent are over 80, for instance? Uh, I think that when you see that kind of number, you see how old the voter demographic is. I think a lot of the choices make a lot more sense. But also, and this is where it gets a little bit exciting for me, why I do have a decent bit of hope for the Academy going forward is that who we, who are we seeing as these people who are in you know their 60s and 70s now well that are the more the people who are involved in what was essentially called new hollywood was involved in the explosion of a different type of cinema in the late 60s and 70s i mentioned you know bonnie and clyde and the breakout of how everything changed in the late 60s and you see that you know these people are now the old people essentially in charge. So it makes complete sense to me that if, you know, it is the people who worked on and, you know, were young when Taxi Driver came out, were young when Bonnie and Clyde came out and worked on them, when you have these people with a slightly different sense of what cinema should be, then I guess the old, the older guard, it makes sense that even with a much older demographic, that they would make the choices that they made here. And I think that as more and more of these people end up in this voting position and you get more and more of these people in, uh, the academy will keep getting more and more interesting as well, at least for me personally. Well, I think what this comes back to is the idea that the point of the Oscars is to represent what the film industry feels like or what it thinks, and it can only achieve that if it's representative of the industry. Now, I don't know what the actual average age of people working in Hollywood is, but yes, I would suspect it is a bit lower than that. I think in general, the the goal should be for the Academy to be representative because again, that's that's all it is. That's all it represents. I think it is a good idea that the Academy is becoming more diverse in the membership and we're getting voters from a larger age spectrum and ethnicity also voting. I think that could only be a positive thing, but I don't know if we necessarily have very different outcomes if we had a less inclusive, a less diverse range of voters in there. All of them are film industry people. They all appreciate cinema. I don't know if we necessarily make the uh, big differences that some people are proposing. Yeah, I think you're relatively right there. So I do think that simply just expanding the demographics won't necessarily make a big difference. I think there'll probably be a few different movies considered and that um, even though the older guard at the Oscars are probably more similar to my taste now, that the Oscars do tend to strain a little bit behind the times as well. So if you know we had a much younger voting group each time, you'd probably see some different films get the edge. But obviously, no block is a monolith. And I think the only thing that would really change is that a few different films will get slightly different odds. That's about it. Well, I for one am hopeful that things are changing for the better in as far as the Academy is concerned. Even though I have some worries about the, the idea of awarding international films, I do think generally this, light, this last decade has not been a bad one for the Oscars. So 
I'm looking forward to to what the, whatever they do with this very strange year with so few films coming out. On that subject about 2020 being a strange year, uh, from what I've heard, the actual Oscar ceremony is being pushed back until April in 2021. So probably more films will get out. But then what's going to happen for 2021? 2021 is going to have a few less months of films in there. So interesting that it's pushing out of the circle. I'd probably prefer if they didn't and they just sort of accepted that there were less films made in 2020. Just like in the 1940s, 1943 didn't have a particularly large number of uh, films of the highest quality being made because of different things going on there. So interesting to see where they go from this. In terms of being helped, hopeful for the Oscars. I think they have chosen generally pretty solid winners over the last few years. I know for some of them it's more due to politics, but I've generally been quite happy with all of the Oscar winners of the last say, 15 years. I think they've all been pretty strong films. They're not the strongest candidates. I thought they represented something really good in filmmaking. And I think the Academy is continuing to highlight good films, maybe not the best films that are out there. But at least it's something and it's some sort of reference point. I have no idea where the Oscars are headed, but uh, I'm pretty sure I still won't be watching no matter what year it is. Uh, like I said before, though, uh, I'm just interested in the movies. So I hope it's not so much for the Oscars, but just that, um, you know, film industries across the world can get back into production and, and start making good movies again. Yeah, I think I agree with uh, Adam here. I'm not sure, like, regardless of how great the Oscars were to become, I'm not sure if I've ever become an active watcher, but, you know, you, you can never really know. I think my main hope for, for the Oscars future is that they continue down this path, or at least stay on this path where they pick more films that are slightly smaller and need that extra push because that really, especially for selfish reasons, because that really helps me get to see them at the big screen. So I guess that that's my hope for the future of the Oscars, that, that the Academy nominates and awards films so that I can see them on the big screen. And on that note, uh, this has been a really fun episode. Thank you all for listening, and see you again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.